What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the greatest lies that people believe is that religion can save you. And by religion, I mean uh, adherence to a certain sort of beliefs or practices of religion and hope that, you know, by that performance, you will gain the right to uh, be saved or right standing before God. And, you know, when you study through the Bible, you discover that actually the people who are really the more notorious sinners, especially through the Gospels, are the ones that you typically see coming more openly to Jesus, recognizing their need for Jesus, recognizing that they're sinful and they need a Savior. And the ones that are really the more difficult ones to reach with the gospel are the religious. It's the religious crowd that, that Jesus, particularly the Son of God, has the biggest trouble reaching with the truth of their need for a Savior. And they feel like, well, I don't need that because of, you know, I have this religion and I have these works and I have this stuff that, that makes me right with God. And so they're the oftentimes difficult one because they're blind to their own sin. They're blind to their need for Jesus. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that Jesus did not come to promote religion. He didn't praise the religious people and say, oh, it's so great all the things that you're trying to do. Instead, he upset them because he revealed their sin. That they wanted everyone to look and say, hey, well, look at how great we are. Look at the things that we do for God. And Jesus says, no, look, look at your sin. Look at the, how far you are from God. Look at the needs that you have in your life. He showed them the religious works could not save them, but only faith and him could. Well, this morning we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with a very religious man, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And this conversation is centered really on one of the most important questions that there is. Why does a person need salvation and how does a person receive salvation? You know, what Jesus shares here with Nicodemus is really, if you want to take, like, what are the most important things in Scripture, this would be one of those things. This is one of those things you want to go straight to, learn from, understand, because it's so vital to understand. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about the way Jesus um, speaks to Nicodemus. If we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select John chapter 3 as the most suitable one for such an occasion And what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, you have Jesus doing lots of teaching, sharing lots of things to crowds of people, to to multitudes of people. But John, in his gospel, when he has Jesus sharing things, he, he brings us to these private moments, these moments that he's speaking to individual people, and he shares with us these insights of these conversations that people weren't privy to that Jesus had with individuals. And the first conversation that John 
blesses us with hearing about is this conversation that Jesus has with this religious man named Nicodemus about the need for salvation and the way of salvation. So let's see what we can learn from the amazing truths that Jesus is going to share with Nicodemus starting in verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So John starts off here sharing with us a few important things about this man named Nicodemus to kind of help us understand some things about him. First, Nicodemus is a very religious man. We're told that he was a Pharisee. And, you know, the Pharisees, we, we know a lot about them and their encounters with Jesus. But, you know, they were very focused on works, very focused on trying to uphold the law. They were a group of people that really felt, hey, we are right with God. We are close to God, actually closer to God than most everyone else, because look at all the things that we do that others don't. And so they actually, the word means the separated ones. They felt like we are separate from the rest of you and, and we are more godly than the rest of you. And this was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. Second, Nicodemus was a powerful man with preeminent status. We're told that he was a ruler. This is most likely speaking of the fact that he ruled on the Sanhedrin Council, which was a council of 70 men that ultimately had religious authority over all Jews in the world. And so this was a very significant group with lots of power. These group of 70 men had this jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. So he also has this very powerful ruling position. And third, Nicodemus was very influential. We're going to see in verse 10 that Jesus himself referred to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. So not only is he a Pharisee, not only is he a ruler, but he's also someone who has this very influential role of teaching other Jews about the things of God. And so in the eyes of Jews, I'm sure that Nicodemus would have been seen as a very godly man, someone who knew who God was, who knew the right way to be right with God, someone who was an example and a teacher, someone that many probably aspired to be like. Well, this religious, powerful, and influential man, he does something very wise. He decides to come and meet with Jesus. And John tells us as Nicodemus comes to Jesus that he comes by night. Now, I think it's important to know that we don't know why Nicodemus chose to come at this point in time. So many people kind of read something very negative into this. Well, he came by night because he was fearful that all the people that he was friends with and associated with would find out that he went to see Jesus, and so he wanted to do it in stealth so no one would know. And, you know, there's a possibility that's true. It could have been another possibility that Jesus was swamped with people through the day. He was hoping to get a more intimate, personal conversation, so he thought, you know what, I'm going to come at night. Or guess what? He's a religious leader with lots of responsibilities, and it's the Passover. Maybe his day was super busy during the day, and he only had time at night. So we shouldn't read into something negative when the Bible doesn't tell us that. The most important thing of all is he came. You know, regardless if he came in the morning, the afternoon, or night, he came to Jesus, which many people did not. And so this is the real key of what he does, and it's going to be very important for him and for us as we get to hear what Jesus says. 
And this is something I love about Jesus. Whenever someone is sincere in their search, whenever someone really wants true answers, Jesus always makes himself available for those people. He's always saying, hey, I'm available for you to answer your questions. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and John tells us, he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus starts by referring to Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. And notice he specifies, you know what, you're not just any old teacher. I recognize that you are a teacher who's come from God. Well, why would Nicodemus say that? He goes on to refer to the fact that I say this because of the signs that you do. Because only someone from God could do these miracles that you're doing. Now remember, we ended last week in chapter 2 with These words, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which Jesus did. So chapter 2 ends with that, and it's very likely it happened at the temple. That was a place that Nicodemus would have been responsible to be at. He probably saw these signs. And so he he recognizes this. He sees these things. That's why he's saying, hey, you're you're a teacher come from God because of the signs that you do. I just saw them. He was also probably there to see Jesus cleanse the temple. He saw that as well. And so I'm sure he was very taken back. Look at this man with this power, but also this man with the audacity to cast out these money changers and and these people who sold oxen and, and, and animals. And I need to have a conversation with this guy. I need to meet him. And so he comes to Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think something very important to understand about Jesus is that he knows exactly where people are at, and he knows exactly the needs that people have. And it's interesting, as you look through the Gospels, oftentimes people will come to Jesus with a question, And his response has nothing to do with their question. Why? Because that's not their real need. That's not their real issue. And so he always gets to the heart of the need, the heart of the issue. And here we have Nicodemus, and all Nicodemus has said is, you're a teacher from God, and I know it because of the signs that you've done. Nicodemus has yet to pose a question, and Jesus just jumps right into Nicodemus' problem. Jesus knows exactly what Nicodemus needs. He knows exactly where Nicodemus is at. And so he just shares what Nicodemus needs to hear Perhaps this was what Nicodemus came for. Perhaps it wasn't. But this is what Nicodemus needed. And Jesus shares with him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, something very important to understand is that Nicodemus and all the Jews at that time believed something problematic. They believed that being a descendant of Abraham assured them of entering God's kingdom, assured them of salvation. It was widely taught among the Jews at that time that since they descended from Abraham, they were automatically assured of heaven. In fact, some rabbis taught that Abraham stood at the gates of hell just to make sure that none of Abraham's descendants accidentally walked through. There was this mindset that if if you're uh, born Jewish, you're good. That's all you need to be a descendant of Abraham and everything is going to be guaranteed. Now, some religious leaders took it a little farther. They said, you know what? It's not just enough to be born Jewish. You also have to be like us and do all these works and and uphold the law the way in which we do. 
But Nicodemus could say, you know what, I can check both those boxes. I'm born Jewish, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a ruler, I'm a teacher. I mean, either way, I'm guaranteed the kingdom of God. I'm guaranteed God's salvation. But what Jesus shares goes completely against that kind of thinking. Jesus made it plain that, you know what, man's first birth does not assure him of the kingdom of God. Only being born again gives that assurance. Now, in some of the translations that you might have, instead of being translated born again, it's translated born from above. And the reason for that is this Greek word actually has two different ways in which it can be translated. The main meaning and use of this word is actually from above, speaking of the things from heaven, the things from God. And the second meaning of this word is anew or again. Uh, and so, but both fit well with what Jesus is saying here because you must be born again, meaning you must be born anew from above. Because the only one who can do it is the one from above, God. He's the one who makes it possible for man to be born again. You cannot accomplish that in ourselves. You know, if Jesus said, you know what, unless you're washed, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, then we might say, well, I could wash myself. Yeah, okay, Jesus, I I can do that. But he didn't say wash, he said born. You can wash yourself, I can wash myself, but we can't birth ourselves. You know, that's something that has to come from beyond us. It comes from God Himself. And notice Jesus used a very important word. He uses the word unless. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word unless reveals that being born again is the only way for someone to be saved. It's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. And notice because their mindset is, well, I'm Jewish, that's the way. Or or I'm religious and I do all these things, that's the way. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Unless you do it this way, which is the only way, you will not receive and enter the kingdom of God. So unless literally means that a person has no other choice in the realm of salvation. You either come God's way, or you will not experience salvation. Well, let's see Nicodemus' response here in verse 4, hearing these very foreign words to his mind, I'm sure. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Notice that Nicodemus completely missed the point of what Jesus is referring to. Nicodemus is focused on the physical. He thinks that Jesus, when speaking of born again, is speaking of a physical birth. And that's why he says, well, how can someone be born when they're old? What do they got to do? Climb back in their mother's womb? You know, he, he misses it because Jesus isn't speaking about a physical birth. He's speaking about a spiritual birth. And this just happened, and maybe Nicodemus was there when they said, show us a sign, Jesus, that you cleanse this temple. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And they missed what he was saying. They thought he was speaking of the literal temple when he was speaking of himself. Nicodemus is in that same boat. He's thinking Jesus is speaking of a physical birth when actually Jesus is referring to a spiritual birth. And so since Nicodemus completely misses it, Jesus goes on to explain more about being born again in verses 5 and 6. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is 
spirit. So once again, Jesus uses this term, unless, this is the only way, but I'm going to now, you know, clarify. I'm going to give you a little more information. You didn't understand that term, born again. Well, fine. Let me give you some other things that hopefully will jog your memory, hopefully help you understand. I'll expound on it. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, there's a debate among scholars as to what Jesus refers to when he says of water. Everyone's in agreement of what he's speaking of when he says of spirit. But uh, let me give you, there's basically four different thoughts as to what water refers to. But before I share that with you, I want you to note something important, because I think the context here helps lead us to perhaps what is Jesus what we're referring to. Because in verse 10, Jesus gives a rebuke to Nicodemus. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So notice that when Jesus speaks of being born again, being born of water, being born of the Spirit, he says, Nicodemus, you should, as a teacher of Israel and knowledge of the Old Testament, know what I'm talking about. Which leads you to believe that what Jesus is referring to is clearly in the Old Testament. That's why he's giving him the rebuke of why don't you know this? This is something that you should know because you're supposed to be an Old Testament scholar. So how come you don't know what I'm talking about? So with that in mind, the first thought as to what Jesus means by being born again is water baptism. This is actually the least held belief. I definitely don't think that's what Jesus is speaking about. Baptism is a symbol of death, not of birth. It would also add work to salvation. Uh, you typically see people who hold to this as the groups that say salvation is necessary or, or um, baptism is necessary for salvation, but most scholars do not hold to this. Uh, the second thought is that Jesus was speaking of the Word of God. In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, it speaks of being washed by the water of the Word. It's a very interesting thought. You know, you can connect some different things, but this really isn't an Old Testament concept. I don't think it would be, I think it would be a foreign concept for Nicodemus, where it's like, what are you talking about? Third, the thought is that Jesus was speaking of our physical birth. Uh, this is very possible since we're ultimately born out of a sack of water. Uh, it also has a good parallel to verse 6 uh, when John speaks about that which is born of the flesh, our literal birth. And so this is a very possible one that lots of scholars hold to this one. Uh, I personally lean to the forethought because it's something that is prophesied in the Old Testament that Nicodemus could be rebuked for not knowing since he should have known it. The forethought believes that Jesus is referring to the water of cleansing prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36 as a part of the new covenant that God was going to bring to the nation of Israel. And I'll read what is said here so you can see what I mean. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you should dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel is prophesying about a future event that God's going to do, a new covenant that God's going to bring, a cleansing that he's going to bring to the nation of Israel, cleansing from their past sins, but notice also a new heart and a new spirit that is going to indwell them, which we know only happens to those who actually put their faith in Christ and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so this is a prophecy speaking of what God's going to do to ultimately make it possible for people to be born Again. 
And so I believe this is what Jesus is referring to to help Nicodemus understand because he says born again and Nicodemus is like totally missing it. You mean I got to be physically born? Oh, no, all right, Nicodemus. Let me share with you from Ezekiel. Maybe that will jog your memory. Maybe that will help you to understand what I'm speaking of. But it's very possible that Jesus is just being redundant and he's saying, you know what, a physical birth versus a spiritual birth, which he's going to refer to in verse 6. But either one of those, I think it's a very uh, plausible explanation for this. Jesus goes on in verse 6 to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So Jesus wants to make very clear, there are two different births. There's the flesh or physical birth, but then there's another birth. A birth that, you know, these Jews weren't really expecting or thinking they needed in order to be able to enter the kingdom of God, and that is a spiritual birth. And Jesus is making very clear, you have to have the spiritual birth in order to be saved. The fleshly birth only produces flesh. It's not going to get you where you need to go. You have to have the spiritual birth in order to have the kingdom of God. So this would be, you know, some, some shocking news to someone like Nicodemus saying, you know what, your physical birth being born as a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, doesn't cut it. That's not what's going to get you into the kingdom. You must be born again spiritually in order to be saved. You know, the Bible makes very clear to us that you and I are born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And this is our problem. Well, if we're born spiritually dead, how do we ever get to the kingdom? How do we ever get saved? Well, we have to have spiritual life. Well, when does that happen? When we're born again spiritually, we go from spiritual death to we're born anew to spiritual life. And until you're born again, you're still spiritually dead, separated from God, ultimately to receive the judgment of God. And so we must be born again. But the key is that's only something that God can do. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, A man may cast away many vices, forsake many lusts in which he indulged, and conquered evil habits, but no man in the world can make himself to be born of God. Though he should struggle ever so much, he could never accomplish what is beyond his power. To wash and dress a corpse is far different thing from making it alive. Man can do one, God alone can do the other. You know, religion really is trying to take a spiritually dead corpse, wash it, dress it up, make it look nice, but at the end of the day, it's still spiritually dead. Nothing that we can do can change that reality. And that's what religion does. I'll do this work. I'll adhere to this thing. Oh, I'm looking better. I'm cleaning myself up. You know, it's looking nicer. But the problem is we're still just a spiritually dead corpse. And nothing that we can do can ever bring spiritual life. It's something that's completely dependent on God to do for us. Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. I'm sure that even as Jesus is sharing, the looks on you know, Nicodemus' face is one of just like complete marvel. Like, what are you talking about? And one of the reasons that you know, Nicodemus would marvel so much is because everything that he's been taught is being challenged. So you're telling me, Jesus, that my heritage, that being Jewish, that being a descendant of Abraham, the fact that I am a Pharisee and a ruler and a teacher of Israel means nothing to my salvation. It doesn't earn me the place in the kingdom of God. He would marvel at that. That goes completely against what he believed. 
You know what? There are many people today who marvel at the thought that they must be born again. Marvel at the thought that, wait a minute, my, my religious works aren't enough? That's not what's going to save me. That's not what's going to earn salvation. That's not going to be why when I stand before God, he lets me in because my good outweighed my bad or, or look at all these things that I've done. They marvel at the idea that I have to be born again, that what I do in my works does not do enough. You see, the Bible lumps everybody into one category. We kind of look at different categories. We say, okay, well, you're the religious folks. You know, you're, you're definitely going to get in. You're the non-religious folks. Sorry. You know, you're the ones who do lots of good works. And so God's definitely going to allow you in heaven and, and you don't do anything. So you guys are going straight to hell. You know, you're the guys who try your best. You guys are wretched sinners. You know, we kind of have these categories and, and we have this group that we feel like deserves it and this group that we feel like doesn't deserve it. But you know what? God doesn't have those categories. He puts everybody into one category. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God says, here, you know what, everybody, you're in one category. You're all a bunch of sinners. You might think you're better because you do these works, but you know what, you're still a sinner. You might think he's worse because he does a bunch of sins. Maybe he does more sins, but you know what, you're a sinner as well. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we cannot be saved and enter the kingdom of God without being spiritually born again. That's essential because of the sin that you and I have. Henry Morris wrote this, These solemn words forever exclude the possibility of salvation by human merit. A man's nature is so gripped by sin that any activity of the Spirit of God is a necessity if he is to be associated with God's kingdom. It doesn't matter how good or religious someone thinks they are. The bottom line is all of us are sinners who need to be born again in order to be saved. Well, still Nicodemus is marveling. He still isn't quite getting it. Jesus goes on in verse 8 to say this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here's another illustration that Jesus is giving to try to help Nicodemus understand what he's talking about as he speaks of being born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. Hey, Nicodemus, you don't understand everything about the wind. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going, but you know the effects of it. You can see it blowing on things. You can feel it. You know it exists, but yet you don't know everything about it. You don't deny it. Well, that's how it is with the birth of the Spirit. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know, you don't need to understand everything about the new birth in order to experience it. Well, Nicodemus' first response when Jesus says, you must be born again, is, is a complete missing it. i got to go back into my mother's womb? All right, Nicodemus, let me explain some more. Well, now we're going to see Nicodemus' second response, and let's see if he gains any more insight to what's being said in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? <laughs> so even after more explanation, Nicodemus is still confused. He might grasp a little better what Jesus is talking about, and that's why he's saying, like, how can this be? How can it be that me, this religious you know, Pharisee who's a ruler and teacher, not be already set, not be one who's already gone into the kingdom? 
Nicodemus is struggling with this. And so Jesus graciously said, all right, I'll explain more. I'm going to help you come to understand these very important truths that I'm sharing with you. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If we have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if we tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. But he should have. He should have known what Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus gives him a rebuke. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? You see, the Old Testament spoke of the new birth. These were plainly laid out. This is a man who's a teacher of Israel. He's a man who prided himself as a Pharisee, as a religious man, who who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, who taught the Scriptures. All throughout the Scriptures, new birth, new beginning, new creation, new life, all that were going to be a gift from God are spoken of in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, how is it you, the teacher of Israel, don't know this? Why is this new information? Why is it you marvel at this? Why is it you don't get what I'm speaking to you about? Jesus goes on to say, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is now communicating to Nicodemus who he is. That he's God who came down from heaven. And because he is God from heaven, he speaks and he testifies to what he has seen. But also that he has the authority to speak about what it actually takes to be born again. Nicodemus, I am God. That's why I can speak on this matter. And I dwell in the kingdom of God. And that's why I can tell you what is necessary to get there and what won't get you there. I am the authority on the matter. Now, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus could have stopped the conversation right here. Nicodemus, I've told you things that you should grasp. I told you earthly things that you should understand. If you can't get that, how are you going to grasp when I share heavenly things that are deeper, that are more profound? And you're going to say, you know what? You might as well go home. You're never going to get it. That could have been the end of the conversation. But fortunately for Nicodemus and fortunately for us, Jesus continues to share heavenly things. Even though Nicodemus wasn't getting it, Jesus is going to reveal some of the most profound and important truths that are in the entire Bible. And so we are so blessed that he continues this conversation and that John records it for us. Verses 14 through 16, some of the most important verses in Scripture. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that those who believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus now, all right, Ezekiel didn't work. The water and the Spirit, you didn't get it. Everything that I've been sharing is kind of, you're missing it. So let me take you to an Old Testament story that you should be very familiar with. And I'm going to take that Old Testament story and connect it rightfully to who I am. 
to hopefully that you can make the connection of what I'm speaking about here, of the necessity for faith in me in order to be born again. And the story that Jesus shares from is from Numbers chapter 21. It's a story of sin. Because the nation of Israel sinned by complaining against God. It was something that they did a lot. But at this point in time, God does something in response to this. So it's also a story of judgment. God pours out His judgment on this sin by sending these fiery serpents to bite the nation of Israel. Bite people there. And when they got bit, they would get sick and then they would die. And so this was quite a severe judgment. But it's also a story of grace. Because God provided a way to be saved from this judgment of these serpent bites. God tells Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So it's a story of sin, it's a story of judgment, it's a story of grace, but notice it's also a story of faith. When the people looked by faith at the serpent on the pole, they were saved from the judgment of God, which is ultimately death from these poisonous serpents. Now, there are two very important things about the story. First, the poisonous bite was terminal. And second, there's only one cure provided. Well, Jesus connects this story of sin, judgment, grace, and faith with himself and what he was going to do for the sin of the world. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of God or Son of Man, be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice in Numbers 21 that the people were not saved by, by doing something. Not by concocting some remedy to try to you know, overcome the poison. Not by fighting the serpents. Not by making some kind of offering. Not by a prayer. Not by looking to Moses. They were saved... One way and one way only, simply by looking in faith to the bronze serpent on the pole. Didn't even matter how many times they were bit or how infected they were. If they would look in faith, God would save them from his judgment and they would live. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You know, many people are willing to do hundreds and hundreds of things in order to earn their salvation. But God says, there's only one way. Trust in me. Look to me. That's the only way in order to be born again. That's the only way in order to be saved and enter the kingdom of heaven. Just like the serpent was lifted up on a pole, Jesus says, he must be lifted up. Speaking of being lifted up on the cross. And just like people had to believe that looking at the serpent on the pole would save them from God's judgment, we must believe that the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins is enough to save us from the judgment that we deserve because we have sinned. Jesus goes on to say that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and for good reason, it is the most profound verse for understanding in a sentence the significance of the Gospel 
and the important truths about God's love. Actually, really, this verse reveals five important truths about the love of God. First, it reveals the scope of God's love. For God so loved the world. Now, this is something that would have been shocking to Nicodemus because the Jews didn't believe this at all. They believed for God so loved the nation of Israel, period. Not, not, not that it went beyond that. Not that he loved Gentiles. They actually thought Gentiles were just there to fuel the fires of hell. That They didn't believe that God loved them. This was a foreign concept that there was this universal offer to all mankind of salvation. Why? Because God loves the entire world. Every race, every nationality, rich, poor, slave, free, man, woman. God loves them all equally in the sphere and scope of God's love is in that wonderful truth, for God so loved the world. The second thing that John 3.16 reveals is the expression and gift of God's love, that He gave His only begotten Son. You know, God didn't just feel bad for us. Yeah, you guys are a bunch of wretched sinners. I feel bad. That's, that's just unfortunate. He did something about it. He gave the most precious thing to give His only begotten Son. I think this is something important to recognize about God. God is love. And that's great. But it's only really great because He gives it away. If God was just love, but He kept that love to Himself and He didn't give any of it, guess what? We wouldn't be the beneficiary of it. The truth is that He is love and that He in love gave the greatest demonstration of love by sacrificing His only begotten Son. That's the good news. God gives His love away. F.F. Bruce wrote this, The love of God is limitless. It embraces all mankind. No sacrifice was too great to bring its unmeasured intensity home to men and women. The best that God had to give, He gave. His only Son, His well Beloved. The third thing that John 3.16 reveals is the recipient of God's love. Whoever believes in Him. God loves the entire world, but something important to understand is that the world does not receive or benefit from that love until it believes in Jesus, until it accepts the gift of love the Father gave in sending His Son. Believes in means much more than just an an intellectual awareness. It means to trust in, to rely upon, to cling to, placing one's life and trust in complete surrender to the one in whom we believe. That's the group. Who does this love benefit? Only those who believe in Jesus. The fourth thing that John 3.16 reveals is the intention of God's love. It says, should not perish. Speaking of not perishing for all eternity in hell. God loves to save people. He doesn't want people going to hell. He doesn't want people to experience eternal damnation. God looks at fallen humanity and He does not want it to perish. And so He does everything possible for them not to. In love, He came, took the punishment Himself so that we wouldn't have to receive His judgment. The fifth thing John 3.16 reveals is the duration of God's love, but have everlasting life. What a wonderful truth for us. And it's not like, you know what? 
God's going to love you for a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years. No, all eternity, his love for you, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ, will continue. What a blessing. Because we, I'm sure, have received a love from people that fades. Love from people that turns. But that's not the love of God. His love will last for all eternity. So John 3.16 reveals five of the most amazing truths of God's love to us. So Jesus comes to Nicodemus. He shares how to be born again. you got to believe in me. But now Jesus is going to finish his conversation with Nicodemus with what happens to those who don't. Okay, well, what if I don't choose to believe in you, Jesus? Then what? And Jesus is also going to reveal why people would choose to reject this free gift that God has so lovingly given to us. Verses 17 through 21 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. Notice how Jesus starts with such a very important truth to understand. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Please note this purpose. Note the purpose of why God sent Jesus. It wasn't to condemn the world for their sin. It was to save the world from their sin. And why this is so important is because so many Christians seem to miss this. They seem to think that, you know what, God's purpose is to condemn this wretched sinful world and I can't wait till He does it. And my calling from God is to be a condemner of this sinful world. But that is so far from what God's purpose is and from what God's calling is for us. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to make it possible for the world to be saved so they don't get condemned. And His calling for you and me is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the message that tells the world how they can escape condemnation. Not to condemn them, but to help save them from the condemnation that they deserve of their sin. And too often as Christians, we're just ready and hoping, look at how sinful our world is. Look at how horrible our culture is. Lord, just come and destroy them. That's not the heart of God. That shouldn't be the heart of us. Lord, they're so wretched. They're so sinful because they're lost Help me to reach them with the gospel, the one thing that will help change them and that they can escape what they deserve like I have escaped what I deserve because of your great love for us. God doesn't want condemnation from the world. He wants salvation. That's why He gave His life to make it happen. But you've got to believe in Jesus for it to happen. What about those who don't? Jesus says, He who does not believe is condemned Already. You know, John 3.16 is the most gracious and wonderful offer conceivable. Eternal life for all who believe in Jesus. But with that offer has inherent consequences for anyone who rejects it. Anyone who refuses to believe in Jesus, their refusal brings the condemnation of God upon them. 
That's the reality of it. God's saying, hey, I've done everything to make it so that you don't have to be condemned for your sin. I did it. I took the punishment. I paid the price. All you have to do is trust in that. But if you choose to reject what I have done, then you are accepting that you're going to take responsibility for your own sin. And the consequence of doing that is you must pay the price. If you're not going to accept that Jesus paid it on your behalf, you're going to pay it yourself, which brings the condemnation of God upon you for all of eternity in hell. I think we need to recognize we should never leave the reason for anyone's condemnation at God's door. He did everything possible to save people. He's not the one who's causing this. It's individuals who choose to reject what he's done. They are making a choice for eternity in hell. They're making a choice to reject the way that God has provided. It's not on his door, it's on the individual who won't accept the free gift of what God has done. Well, why do people do this? I mean, you had this great opportunity to be forgiven, this free, wonderful gift of love. Why reject it? Jesus tells us. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. One of the main reasons sinful people reject Jesus, reject the offer of the gospel is because Jesus is the light who reveals their sin that they do not want to stop and give up. You know, in my experience, and I'm sure it's probably been yours as well, at the heart of almost every single person that I have ever spoken to about the Lord, this is really at the heart of their rejection. Now, granted, there will be people who throw out initially thoughts of, well, oh, I don't believe in, in Christianity because there's no proof, or, or the Bible's full of contradictions, or, you know, evolution has disproved it. Or they'll start with some kind of premise that they're saying, well, this is my intellectual reason for rejecting Christianity, and we'll start to talk. And I'll start to give evidence. We'll start to discuss things. And almost inevitably, we'll get to the point where it's really, you know what? This has nothing to do with an intellectual issue with Christianity. There is a sin or many in my life that I do not want to give up. And I know the Bible condemns this lifestyle. And I'm not willing to change. Okay, well, now we're getting somewhere. Now we at least know where we stand. It's not really about, oh, there's all these contradictions and this and that. That's a smokescreen. The reality is you're sinning and you don't want to change. You're sinning. You don't want your life to be different. You don't want to stand before a God who holds you accountable. Okay, fair enough. But recognize, you continue down this road, there are consequences for that. Eternal consequences for that. And Jesus is revealing that. He's the light. And people who want to walk in darkness and sin, they don't want Him around because He exposes what they are. That's what the religious leaders hated. Jesus was like a spotlight on their sin. He exposed their truth of them, and they hated him for it. People don't want that. They don't want to see that. And so if they're not willing to turn from their sin, they want nothing to do with the light of Jesus around them. And unfortunately, it brings condemnation to them. Adam Clark wrote this. They chose to walk in the darkness that might do the works of darkness. They broke the divine law, refused the mercy offered to them, 
and arrested by divine justice, convicted, condemned, and punished. Whence then does this damnation proceed from themselves? God loves every person in this world. He's done everything possible for them to be saved of their sins. But you know what? He's not going to force people to choose. He's not going to force people to accept what He's done for them. He gives them the freedom, the privilege of saying, hey, you can make a choice to accept what I've done or you can make a choice to reject it. I leave that up to you, but you need to understand there is consequence to either one. You accept me, there is positive consequence of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life with me. You reject what I've done for you, there is the consequence of you are now going to be condemned for the sins that you've done for all eternity in hell. So in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals the need to be born again. He reveals how to be born again. He reveals what happens to those who aren't born again and why they choose to reject what God has done. But you know what? This is a conversation that needs to continue. And this is what we've been called to do. What a great conversation where Jesus sits down with this man and explains the gospel, explains the good news, explains how someone is born again and why they need it and why it's important. But that's what you and I have been called to. Not to go out and condemn the world, but to go out and share this message. Go out and share with people who are lost the truth of how they need to be born again, why they need to be born again, and what ultimately will transpire if they reject that message. That's what we're called to do. That's what this world needs so much more of. There are many Nicodemuses, and we need to be those who come and share with them the good news. I want to finish reading something about John 3.16. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that He gave the greatest act, His only begotten Son, the greatest gift, that whoever the greatest invitation believes the greatest simplicity in Him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Let's pray.